I have absolutely no idea what we're doing here, or what I'm doing here, or what this place is about, but I am determined to enjoy myself. Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello, and welcome back to the Appendix M Book Club Podcast. I am your co-host, Hoy, and with me as always is that beturbaned wizard, Jeff Goad. Ooh, here in my conical hat. <laughs> Indeed. And with us is a very special guest, part of that terrible trio, Luke of the Chromecast. Hey guys, thanks for having me on. Pleasure. Um. <laughs> so, uh, this week is episode 41, is that right? 41? That's right, lucky number 41, and we're discussing Elsbrigs to Camp. Uh, Elsbrig to Camp's The Goblin Tower. Indeed, indeed. And uh, before we get started, uh, Luke, uh, let's tell us a little bit about yourself. First of all, how did you get involved in uh, gaming and... When did you become aware of Appendix N as a concept? So I guess I started uh, gaming in the the early 90s, and I was actually in prep for this episode poking around on a couple different uh, websites just trying to figure out exactly what source or what original like D&D content I was first exposed to. And I think what I encountered the first time around was what was called perhaps the uh, the new easy-to-master Dungeons & Dragons uh, box that came out in, like, 1991. Uh, myself and uh, my friend Mike, uh, at the time, you know, struck up a friendship, and I recall one night where there was a sleepover, and I went over to his place, and his older brother, of course, said, hey, do you guys want to play some Dungeons and & Dragons? And, and that really unspooled things. So, so that was a basic edition of the game. Uh, and I think all throughout the early part of the 90s, we probably played like second edition. That's what we tried to do. Mm-hmm. But I, I myself had at least a couple iterations of that classic uh, basic box set that came out in the 90s I, I know i had it at least twice and it had like zanzer tim's dungeon uh as the as like the main adventure that you could work off of so so i started gaming in the early 90s and in the latter portion of the 90s when i was in high school i played uh in a, a variety of sort of like homebrew campaigns that were some some funky systems that me and a, a bunch of bunch of guys in western arkansas like all played together i grew up kind of kind of in the sticks in arkansas and so so D was of course something that was a little bit sort of on the fringes of mm-hmm. of what was accessible <laughs> you know when you're in high school <laughs> that kind of thing but but i did that and then i kind of had a lag when i was in in college but uh after I wrapped up my bachelor's and I jumped into, into, into graduate school, of course, you don't have a whole lot of time when you're working on like a thesis or a dissertation, that kind of thing. But the time that I did have uh, became sort of centered around a weekly like Wednesday or Tuesday evening D&D game that myself and a couple other buddies struck up. So at that point, I kind of shifted over to 3.5. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's really the main the main game that I that I played like we did a 
a couple campaigns that lasted multiple years and and that was a, a longer form sort of adventure right now without being um you know edition warring it is obviously 3.5 uh is less sort of sword and sorcery oriented which is what you guys are known for talking about the most right. so how did you get into sword and sorcery and and sort of the more classical uh classic fantasy fiction well you know so when i was when i was younger tolkien was was the the starting point and was you know just was the high like you know was the high point that i started with i didn't actually read any robert e howard materials until we started doing the chromecast and i think that was in 2013 when when we started up our our podcast uh but and i'm going to interject really quickly for people who are listening who don't know what the chromecast is can you let them know about it yeah so so myself and john and josh we get together on a pretty regular basis uh basically we want to hang out and our excuses we're reading a lot of robert e howard and various other materials like pulp materials uh and it's it's kind of our own little book club, similar to what you guys do. It started with us just covering the core Conan stories. That was season one. I think at this point we're just wrapping up maybe season eight. We've talked about Liber. We've talked about uh, a whole wide variety of of other offers. Carl uh, Edward uh, Wagner, offers. I think. Was that, uh, yeah. yeah, I think we've talked about Wagner. We haven't done, say, like a Kane season. That's something that we bandied about a couple different times over. But, you know, C.L. Moore and... Uh, of course, Lovecraft and uh, Clark Ashton Smith and all of the big names. This this most recent season that we've wrapped up, we called the uh, the Road to the East, and it was us discussing a lot of the uh, Eastern historical adventure fiction that's out there. So Howard wrote uh, a variety of stories about El Borak and uh, those types of materials but there's a whole wide variety of, of, mm-hmm. of other authors too so we covered like talbot mundy we covered and i really enjoyed how much you guys did not enjoy talbot mundy <laughs> <laughs> you know, like y'all sometimes we read some stuff that we that we that we like and sometimes we read some things that we think eh, it's you know give, give yeah. or take yeah yeah and, and <laughs> you know and it's always a difficult question to figure out whether you need to pursue that person further did we did we catch like the the prime material right. or, or or did we somehow miss the boat somewhere and that's yeah. one of those you know yeah because with monday you only read one story right that's right and you know so the three of us were all scientists so we always like focus on sample size it seems like we we always try to like have a little caveat and say oh well we only have like a sample size of a couple stories so maybe we're Maybe we're missing the mark here, but still within our experience, it's, it's this or that. So, well, I mean, you definitely yeah. have to respond to the text as it is, too. I mean, it, it, absolutely. Yeah. Regardless of whether or not the, the broader uh, body of work might show differently, that one story is what we're responding to. So, exactly. Right. Speaking of which, shall we get to the story and the word of the week? Okay. Yes. So, absolutely. We can get to our word of the week. And that word is thaumaturgy. Thaumaturgy. And thaumaturgy is found on page 20 of my version of the paperback here. And it says, Methinks the main factors in your escape were my thaumaturgy, reinforced by my moral purity, the favorable aspects of the planet, and your own strength and metal. And thaumaturgy is the performance of miracles. Did either of you have a, a particular word that really stuck out with you? Or stuck out for you, rather? Um, 
I have a few that like where he just well geese geese is one that he used quite a bit, and that's yes. obviously the geese spell. So, but uh, Luke, do you have a word? So when I when I was first getting into the the novel, I was I was on the lookout for my my Hygaxian words, and the first one that popped out to me was uh falchion or uh a, yes. you know a term for yeah, a curved yeah. sword and i think that mm-hmm. decamp does a good job of using a lot of terms for armaments and arms and the different weapons that pop up within the story and of course the story's rich with a lot of different civilizations and culture cultural type mm-hmm. materials so that was you know i i think i think you could almost just say like uh decamp's terms for for weapons might be might be useful to note here but oh, but later on once we're introduced to the kist or the chest <laughs> that's, that's, <laughs> that's, that's that's holding the materials i didn't know what the hell that was so i, I had to google yeah. kist and and come up with right. that one so i think maybe that would be the the weird word i had to right. had to search for speaking of which which uh, editions is everybody reading here this week yeah, so the edition that that I have here is from Sphere Books, and so this is it's the yellow it's the yellow copy. It says here that it's from 1979. I, I got a kick out of this. The dedication on the the copyright page says to my fellow swashbuckler in fantasy, and fantasy is spelled P H A N T S Y. Lynn Carter. So there's a little a little bromance that's there between there DeCamp and Lynn Carter, which I got a kick out of. But this is the uh, the the yellow covered copy, and it's got a it's got an image of the of the goblins barreling out into nothingness as the as the the pillars and the the stones are coming down all around them. I always dig the sphere, the British covers, because they always seem to be a little bit more um, you know PG thirteen in some of the uh-huh, American uh-huh. covers. Or so. <laughs> so, and how about you, Jeff? Well, I'm cheating this week. Usually uh-huh. I am very um, neurotic about making sure that I am reading a paperback that was printed before the Dungeon Master's Guide was printed. However, I did purchase a lot of books uh, from eBay, and in that lot was a copy of The Goblin Tower from 1983. Uh-huh. Okay. And I was like... I feel like it's a little nitpicky to if I already have it in my possession purchased within a lot to also go out and buy a pre-1979 paperback version of it. So I resisted that temptation. So, (laughs) yes, I have the 1983 Del Rey paperback that has this covered by David B. Mattingly. Sure. And it's a boring, boring ass cover. It's like four wizards with their conical hats and they're just kind of like standing about having some kind of a meeting, but yeah. like it's, it doesn't have a lot of flavor. Right. So Mattingly's always been known as a fairly stiff artist. Okay. So yeah, yeah. that, so that cover like here, like at our half price books, uh, consistently like the honorable barbarian is one of the decamp paperbacks that you see pop up and it has that same artist and that same, like a uh, font style. I guess it's probably yeah. at about the same time that that book came out, maybe That's, in the first printing. Right. Yeah. Eighties fantasy paperbacks really don't have the same kind of sparkle that the sixties and seventies paperbacks. Have. Uh, no, for sure. And uh, this week I'm going to get run off the show cause I'm reading it on the Kindle because they actually had all, <laughs> all three uh, uh, reluctant King books in one omnibus edition. And uh, I just wasn't in the hunt at that moment for the uh, camp books. Having said that, 
I actually really like this book and, and I'm always up and down at a camp. So I'd like to hear your reactions to the book. So. Ooh. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, yeah. So I guess let's, let's start with you, Luke. What did you think of the goblin tower? So uh, this is, I'm excited. I think most to talk about the D and D aspects of this book with y'all, because I think there's, I think there's a lot. Uh, the, the narrative itself is, is super episodic. It, you know, it's what, like 10 or 11 chapters. They're right. all vignettes that are grounded in different civilizations are our protagonist jorian is is coming into contact with different peoples he's traveling far and wide across this world i liked it uh i don't think the narrative is super strong but overall as i was reading it almost as a not as a homework assignment i, I really wanted to read this story but in doing so in 2019, it was informative and useful for me to, to be able to read it and to pick out a lot of the points that, you know, we can see now in like contemporary sword and sorcery and like D and D and, uh, you know, RPG worlds. Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah. I definitely thought it was kind of a picaresque. So I think obviously it was a very deliberate choice to make these sort of vignettes. Um, but obviously, if you're looking for a strong through line from episode to episode, other than this geese of him having to find this kiss and bring it back to the Wizards Conclave, it's not, you know, that's not the compelling aspect of it. So I agree that in that sense, if you're looking for break, breakneck momentum from start to finish, that's not what's happening. Now, one thing that's exciting to me about this episode is usually Hoy and I are just about right on the same page when it comes to our level of enjoyment. But Hoy, I really didn't care for this one very much. Hmm, okay. the, the stuff that I the stuff that I liked about it was absolutely like it's dripping with D and D goodness, and sure. I can't wait for the second half of the episode where we start talking about magic systems because like you can write a magic system just from this book. Oh, for but, sure. But the experience of reading all two hundred and sixty pages of the Goblin King, or the, I'm sorry, the Goblin Tower. It, it was a bit of a slog for me and especially like he keeps going in these tangents where he will start, the, the main character will start telling a story to a captivated audience. But like the story will be like 15 pages of him just like telling some story. And I'm like, this isn't even the novel. Like this is just <laughs> something he's telling people. Why do I need to spend so much time engrossed in something he's telling other people and oftentimes the the kind of twist at the end of the story or the reward that comes with it doesn't feel like it's worth the the word count. I, I wow. agree very much. It's it like if, if DeCamp would have taken a little bit more effort to to tie his narratives within the narrative back into the larger uh, path that Jorian's plotting I, I would have liked that a lot more i think right uh, although a couple points it's a couple times where he even expressly says that he was trying to tell the story in not an interesting way <laughs> like when he's telling it to the to the, to, to the nomads he's like he spoke with a very like monotone voice and, and, and padded the word count <laughs> so and so. as an experience that works if i'm reading you know american psycho like brett easton ellis and he's just like right T telling us about like his, his, his obsessive electronics collection. Right. Right. But right. When it comes to sword and sorcery, that, that doesn't fly for me. Well, I guess the reason I like this though, is because um, it feels more natural to what I know of DeCamp 
than his attempts to do like Conan, for example, right? It's, it's witty, uh, if not consistently so. And uh, without the sense of sometimes DeCamp has of sort of uh, looking down on his audience, that I don't get. When sometimes he's always like, oh, I'm the smartest guy in the room. And this is not so much the case uh, with the stories. So I think that I think I appreciated that. And I think the characters, by and large, are well drawn if they don't evolve much. That's another story. But, you know, you know who Jorian is. He's, you know, he's deceiving self to a certain extent. But he's also at moments capable of self-reflection. Um, I think his, you know, wizardly mentor is, is funny because he seems like he's a coward, but he always comes through in the right way at the end. And the various opponents are, you know, not at the level of a, a Vancean opponent, but they have a certain sort of wit and flair to them as well. So, you know, take that for what you will. And you're exactly right. And maybe it works better in like this book might be a benefit from reading over the course of a week where you read one chapter a day, you know, rather than trying to plow through it, you know, in an afternoon or even a weekend. So, yeah, that's fair. Uh, yeah. I think maybe part of that too, why maybe it, he doesn't quite have the same level of condescension that maybe Harold Shea does or what's his face from uh, less darkness fall is that I, I feel like King Jorian is less of a stand in for Elspreg de camp than his protagonists right. usually are. And even just something as silly as, he describes King Jorian as having a massive hairy torso. And <laughs> as soon as I, I read that, I'm like, okay, yeah, this is definitely not an Elspring to Camp stand-in. Actually, you know what? You just actually you just made me realize something, Luke. I have quite possibly this is a spoof on Lynn Carter. You know, Lynn Carter as a rock hunter, uh-huh. well known as a rock hunter, and you know, and a little bit of a scholar of a bunch of different things. You know, you know, maybe affectionate spoof, but quite possibly a spoof on Lynn Carter. So. <laughs> oh, interesting. Yeah. And maybe that's yeah. why he's, he's, oh, interesting. Yeah, Lynn Carter was known to have shaggy hair and, you know. Uh, Do you have a, a massive hairy massive... torso? That I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Only Elspreg camp and Lynn Carter's ex-wife know for sure. <laughs> but, you know, Lynn Carter was interested in a lot of things. And, and again, so I wonder. And, you know, because especially in particular, the last chapter is clearly a satire on science fiction and academic conventions, right? So, <laughs> so I wonder about that. Uh, it just occurred to me, I have no nothing to back that up with, but it, it sort of makes sense to me. So, <laughs> <laughs> so while reading this, did you guys did you guys have a favorite character that's, that really stuck out for you? I, I have to say, I do really like Jorian, and I like his, his, his romantic heart of gold that comes out throughout the the novel that I, I like the fact that it seems that he just wants to get back to his one true love. He can't help, but fall in love with a couple lasses throughout the, the course of the story. And the fact that he is more of a moral center versus the magician that he's working with. I, I like that. Right. He's definitely sort of, um, if we're going to put it in gaming terms, sort of chaotic good. You right. Know? Yes. <laughs> <So it's> yes. <laughs> So, um, and I mean, that's obviously for the gaming hut, but again, it's just so rich in terms of what's, what's involved. But, uh, I think Jorian is up there, but again, I like, uh, each of the characters in vignettes. Maybe they wear, would wear thin if you had to read a whole book about each of the individual characters, but even like, um, even the, the former slave of Rethos, I'm trying, I'm blanking on a name for a second with a V. Um, she's well drawn. You know, you know, she's uh-huh, not, uh-huh. you know, she's, she, um, and, and Venora, Galania, Venora. Yeah. 
Um, the serpent queen is a serpent princess is, is very amusing in her own way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I mean, you could, there's definitely things you could say, okay, well, this is a little sexist, but I think by and large, the, the women characters are well drawn in this book uh, more so than a lot of the sort of more, uh, I don't know, 95 cent of, of pulp fiction that we're reading at some points. You know? Yeah. One thing that I really like is how, I guess sexy the book is it's, you know, it is sexist, but at the same time, there's a lot of empowerment to the, the sexual energy of, of the women in the book as well as the, as well as the men. And that's, that's something that I did appreciate. Mm-hmm. Definitely. The character that really stuck out for me is the God Tavasha. Mm-hmm. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's the, that's the thing that, about these kinds of stories. And I, I encountered this because I, I my least favorite book that we've read so far is The Giant of World's End. But then as soon as Hoy and I started talking about it, we started like, like talking about specific bits in it. Like we were just like loving our conversation because even like the worst appendix end, and I'm not saying this is the worst, but even the worst appendix end still has a lot of really fun stuff to discuss. And Tava, uh, Tavasha is this, this god in a statue that King Jorian finds, but he's this like little petty godling who can't really do much and just wants to be like, just wants to have like gifts of flowers. And he just was cracking me up so much. Like I, I like when he first meets him and he says, uh, King Jorian says, tell me how thou wouldst be worshiped. And he says, an occasional offer of a flower and a nightly prayer would suffice me, but I am a feeble little godlet, but I drink flattery as though it's the finest of wines. <laughs> <laughs> And I like how when they're captured, they're out on the plains and, um, you know, before they're captured by the, the, the sort of nomads, he's like, hey, how come you haven't sent me any flowers lately? And it's like, <laughs> dude, we're, we're in the middle of a, a, an arid plains. It's like, you know, <laughs> keep complaining. I'll throw you in the ocean, you know? <laughs> and I love that moment, too, where um, where King Jorian is, like, on guard and he's, like, like watching out for dangers. But then Tavasha, like, pulls him into this, like, alternate dimension so he can just, like, chat with him for a little while. And then he says, oh, dear me, I've been so absorbed in telling thee this story that I've not noticed the dire peril that creepeth upon thee. <laughs> Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, and I, I love that whole chapter too, because it's like, you know, the tracking elephants and then, the, <laughs> you know, and then this whole long shaggy dog story, which turns out to be a shaggy ape story about, <laughs> you know, this rise of the civilization. <laughs> you know, so in a sense, it is a shaggy dog story. And so you have to have a, a certain kind of tolerance for that kind of stuff. And um, so I would certainly wouldn't recommend it if you're looking for your dose of you know, straight up swords and sorcery, but I don't also think it's a, a satire of swords and sorcery. You know, I, no. I do think it's, you know, it's meant to be high adventure. So, uh, so in terms of other, we, we have, uh, as you mentioned, Luke, there's a ton of different cultures. There's some similarities to existing cultures, although there's not a one-to-one analog of anything. Did you feel that uh, the cultural depictions were, uh, sensitive is maybe not the right word, but at least the nuanced and interesting, or did you feel that they were kind of, um, you know, just kind of boilerplate? Uh, I guess I would say more boilerplate. This, that's maybe the, the biggest sticking point for me about the content of this book is that it is episodic and also focused on specific cultures from uh, chapter to chapter. And, you don't get a the, the way that maybe uh, Sprague gives a little bit of equal treatment to like the 
the sort of sexiness of both the, the men and the women within these story or within this story. I don't feel like there's enough room to breathe for any one civilization to really have much to say in the book. And so I felt like it was a bit boilerplate and that's, I think that's probably my biggest criticism for the book is Mm -hmm. I think that if you would have chopped out about half of those vignettes and maybe stretched them out, like you could have had a more effective novel. Right. I think he's not, uh, you're right. I think he's not quite as vivid uh, in two opposite directions. Vance in one way uh, in terms of depicting the weird, weird, uh, uh, habits and practices like Vance can sketch that out in a sentence and then as far as like depicting of age sheer age and, and, and you know Robert E. Howard's the master of that right you know he's saying of, of antiquity um, but I do think that some of one of the nicest passages I've read from DeCamp it's not actually about the culture but it's that description of like the fall season um, just before he reaches Rithos's uh, cabin mm-hmm. it's like the very first page of chapter two I think um, I think it's quite beautiful um, not that that's what we're here for, but, you know. <laughs> uh, so I, th- I think he is, um, you know, a very competent pro stylist, but I think he sometimes gets caught in his own head about wanting to make a clever point. Um, he's definitely making some political points in here about, you know, not deliberately specifically communism or, or, or socialism versus, you know, capitalism, but it's there, it's in the air. This is a book that's just chock full of big ideas. I mean, the the relationship between science and magic, as you say, the 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 political viewpoints that are in the book, there's there's a lot of material that DeCamp is is clearly wanting to hit on here. It's just that the narrative isn't isn't super duper engaging. But uh mm-hmm. but but really like the I, I feel that the story has a has a lot of merit. I don't necessarily want to jump into the second book of this of this trilogy like tomorrow. I want to I want to give it a little while and I'll come back to it. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> but but I am interested to see like what other like of these various big ideas like how they might how they might ex- you know be further sort of spelled out. Mm-hmm. Now, Luke, have you read much Elsberg to Camp prior to this? Not 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 really. Uh I've read some of his anthology work and we on the, the Chromecast have stayed away from any of the, the Howard materials that might've been, been tainted by the camp's <laughs> efforts or, or a variety of other uh, authors. So in our first season, we only covered like what we called the canonical Conan stories. And, yep. and subsequent to that, we've focused on the core Howard authored text with a handful of exceptions. Like there's some Cormac Mac art and some Solomon Kane materials that were, that were finished off by other, by other authors like Ramsey Campbell is coming to mind as someone that finished off at least one of the Solomon Kane stories that we talked about. Right. Right. And Andrew. Offit. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and so off it's a, a Kentucky boy. And so we, uh, we are excited to talk about him. I think, Josh and I are as, as much as the opportunity arises, but, but we've tried to stay away from talking about any of the DeCamp uh, Howard sort of mashups. So I haven't read like any of the complete enchanter materials, nor had I read any of the longer form uh, Novarian stuff. Like we're talking about here, my encounters with DeCamp's work have principally been like his anthologies that he did, you know, across the sixties and the seventies sort of yeah, at the same time that, that, that Carter did. 
Well, if you guys want to make yourself real miserable, maybe you guys can do a season of the Chromecast where you guys just do the Lynn Carter and Elspring to camp pastiches. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll see where we go from from here. We're kind of at a well, at a at a at a next phase. We just wrapped up one wow. season, so we're thinking about what we'll do next. That would be the season where we all hear you slowly design, uh, descend into alcoholism. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, and this has nothing to do with anything except I, I want to say I really enjoyed the episode where your wives took over for an episode and just discussed Hocus Pocus. Oh, <laughs> nice. It really cracked me up. <laughs> Thanks, man. We did. We got a lot of really good feedback about that. That was that was kind of a lark. You know, for for October, we try to do some some fun episodes that aren't necessarily tied to our to our whatever season we happen to be into at the moment. And so this this time around, it just seems like we kind of hit a zeitgeist. We were talking about witches. That's a that's a topic that fascinates myself as well as the other guys. So we were getting into that and it just seemed natural. Like all of our wives love love the the hocus pocus. And so they they took over the mics for an episode. And one thing that I really liked about the episode too is it also just showed me what good friends the three of you are. Because if the, if you're all if all if all of your wives know each other well enough to do that together and have the kind of chemistry that they had together, clearly you all must be just like really good old friends. Yep. So yep. It, it just kind of really brought that to the forefront. <laughs> Thanks, man. <laughs> yeah, definitely. But uh, let's go ahead and go on over to the side of the conversation that we've all been like, I think, itching to talk about, which is how this game may have inspired early D&D or is inspiring our thoughts around D&D today. So, uh, Luke, is there is there a place you would like to start this conversation? So I have my, my little notepad that I was scribbling notes down on and... Yeah, I've got like four pages of yeah. ideas. We could, we could do so many episodes on all of the things that there is to talk about in here. Yeah, so I guess the thing that's at the top, and and we've kind of kind of hit on this before, uh, Jeff. You mentioned the kind of snooze fest that would set in with some of Jorian's stories that he's relaying to whoever happens to be in the audience in the novel. Like this book smacks to me of like what I wrote here was overzealous world builder DM. Like this is <laughs> the, the idea of having these city states that are so close to one another that you can just jump around to from like week to week and season to season. And you get such a variety of cultures. This is, this is like forgotten a, realms, right? Yeah. Everything, everything's there. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. One of the, what, this is a quick thing, uh, but one thing that cracked me up is he was talking about how there are six kinds of kings. Um, no, for every for every six kings, you have one hero, one scoundrel, one fool, and three mediocres. So I'm like, great, roll a d6 <laughs> to find out what kind of a king your kingdom has. <laughs> <laughs> the camp provided us with a random table for random kings right there. Yep, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was definitely struck by how um, Jorian was either clearly either a bard or a multi-class character, right? Because he had thief skills. He was a, a competent but not great fighter. Um, and, uh, you know, he could sort of, I don't know if he was enthralling people or just boring people with the stories, but nonetheless, he was sort of like a sleep spell, right? <laughs> or a charm spell. <laughs> well, there's a moment and, too where he talks about his skills because he says, I gathered a squad of the most unsavory rogues in the 12 cities, yeah. a cut purse, a swindler, a forger, a bandit, a founder of cults and secret societies, a smuggler, a blackmailer, and two burglars. 
I kept them all in luxury whilst they all taught me their tricks. Now I can scale the front of a building, force a window, pick a lock, open a strong box, and, if caught in the act, convince the householder that I am a good spirit sent by the gods to report on his conduct. (laughs) (laughs) That is beautiful. I love that. Right, right. And he's not the best at anything, but he's the second best at everything, right? So, so it's clearly like, you know, that D&D multi-class. Um, although he could perfectly be played in DCC Lankmar with, for example, the martial tra- a thief with the martial training venison or, or likewise a warrior with the skilled in the criminal arts venison, you know, if that was how you wanted to do it. So he, he definitely has that feel, too. Um, Agreed. And, and I know I'm kind of I'm famous for going off about how I don't think clerics belong, but I'm actually starting to even kind of feel like I don't think thieves belong either, because really, like, I mean, all of these adventuring skills, you're just an adventurer. You, you have thieving skills. You have fighting skills. Dorian's got all that. Conan's got all of that. You know, we talk about how Conan is a warrior or a barbarian class. But really, Conan can do any of the things that the Thieves class can do. And I can guarantee you, Conan is not multi-classing in Thief and Barbarian. He's just like right, fully <laughs> leveling up and being Conan. Right, right. right. So you're right, in, you're right in there with the, in the Tim Cask camp. <laughs> right. Totally. I feel like there's really just like adventurer and wizard or like your two, your right. two classes. True, true. I guess it's, uh, it's the, the – obviously, um, it was very clever to think of the classes because if – it's the differentiation or giving yourself a mental picture. And and now it's become hardened in stone, right? Over the last 40 years, you know, a rogue is this type thing, you know, they're, they're sneaky. They never wear armor and they let the meat shield, the, the dumb meat shield take up the brunt of the fighting. So, and so, and so on. Yeah. You know, even when there's clear counter examples, like, you know, Elric being a wizard who is, you know, a, a mighty swordsman when he's not, you know, when his drugs are working for him and he's, you know, well, I don't um, mind giving a wizard a badass sword and letting him kick butt with it. You know, uh, not right. only does Elric do that, but Gandalf is like a great swordsman too. Surely, surely. And obviously, um, as much as Mouser is a thief arch- archetype, he's also, you know, quite a skilled swordsman and he's got a little bit of wizard in him. Sure. You know, and so. Afgorkan, the lich who gave Kothar his magic sword was also at one point, the greatest warrior that ever lived. Right. <laughs> So, um, and I guess, you know, I mean, it, there's, there's, you know, that's in the D and D system. And obviously if you're doing point build systems, you know, um, and it's just, then it's just a point of issue of level cap, you know? Um, but again, we're, we're more of a D and D as such than talking about say RuneQuest or GURPS or stuff like that. So that's, that's maybe a, a digression. Sure. Now, Luke, I want to hear about your thoughts about the magic system as presented in the Goblin Tower. And I'm curious, how D and D is this met? Do you think this magic system is? I don't, I don't necessarily think that the, the application of, of magic within the novel is, is super D and D because it seems like magic is fairly unreliable, at least with our, our main magician that's, that's friends with Jorian. I like how you get the, the mix match of, of magic and science together within this, within this story, there's kind of that blending like within the very first chapter. Right. Uh, and then you kind of get the same sense at the end of the book with the academic stylings and the, the, the scientific meeting of, of the various magicians coming together. So I like the factions and I like the, the structure or sort of the, the society of magicians that we see here, but the spells that are thrown out aren't 
what am I trying to say? They're not, uh, they're not like journeyman spells. Like th- there's not a lot of, of, of magic missile or, uh, effective detect magic type stuff that's going on here. Totally. Or like the invisibility spell is essentially useless. Like that's one of the great things where all the wizards <laughs> right? are talking about how like, cause the invisibility spell t- turns all of your, your, your skin and your ligature and everything else invisible. But in order for it to really work, you also have to turn your eyeballs invisible, which makes you blind. So if you want to be truly right. invisible, you have to be blind or you can just be a pair of floating eyeballs. <laughs> and uh, yeah, the dispel magic, of course, goes disastrously awry at the end, obviously. Yes, yes. Counterspell. Um, yeah. There's some things that are clearly, I mean, it's not unique, but uh, the D&D rope trick spells right there in the very first chapter, yep. right? But then he ends up in our, our modern world, like on a Pennsylvania highway, essentially. Uh, <laughs> Totally. Uh, the geese is there, but it's actually kind of like it's not exactly clear. It's not like he necessarily feels like magical pressure working on him, but he just stays on this quest anyway. And so you're never quite sure if it's just like actually he just feels like a sense of obligation to Carador or friendship to Carador. Just keep on doing this thing, yeah. You know. Um, but there's a couple of things I thought also. Um, again, you were talking about the magicians. They're actually quite well differentiated, right? Each magic user, like Rethos, the sword magic, you know, the swordsmith. You know, he's quite burly, but he's an incredibly powerful magician, you know, in terms of building these swords. Um, and they're all sort of like very hyper-focused on the thing that they do well. And so that's all he wants to do is build swords. That's, right? that's then, a good point, Hoy. I didn't think about that, like, as yeah. I was reading it. But now it seems, yeah, we have get these these cool characterizations. You know, even when they're at the tower in the last chapter or two, there's the introductions and the quick references to who's who. Right, right. And like that one guy who's a con man who does like the, the bait and switch with their money. He's like, oh, I only have a, a, a farthing left. I don't know how I'll eat tonight. But let's go have dinner anyway. <laughs> totally. Yeah, I feel like this magic system isn't super d and I agree with you guys. You know, magic being unreliable, which is very DCC, but it is not D&D. Um, yeah. Also, one of the things is that, and this isn't D&D or DCC, and it's, it's something that I really like that if and when I ever create a rule system, I'm going to do this. But I like how magic actually just saps you of your energy and you're just exhausted when you cast it. And it's not just like you, you have a thing memorized and then it goes away. Um, it really is like it's, it's feeding off of your own power. Um, and there are all these moments where like we have wizards who are saying like, oh, I can't, I can't cast any spells. I've already cast two today, you know, or I flew all the way over here. So now I won't be able to cast a spell for a few days. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And that's more like, say, RuneQuest again or GURPS, where you have you know magic points, but literally in GURPS it's fatigue points. Yeah. So, so which I think um, makes better, even better sense than 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 magic points. Um, right. I, I want to see that coming right off of your strength and dexterity scores. Right, right. And to extent DCC allows that when they do the spell burn, right, is to you know at first that's fine, but if you really want your spell to be truly powerful, it's going to take a lot out yes. of you. Um, and also, I, sh- I should mention the other candidate for word of uh, Hygaxian word is a conclave, right? Conclave. The 998 is, is the whole, conclave of wizards. Right, right. It's the whole goal of this is to meet, to go to this conclave, you know, which is, again, not too different from an academic conference of the late 60s. <laughs> you know? <laughs> you know, people nodding out, going to the bar to skip the main, the keynote, you know, and... And I imagine Luke, you would have some experience with that as a scientist too. So. It's, it's true. I'm going. I'm going to a conference uh, day after tomorrow. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> it's going to be a lot of 
pulling on your beard and falling asleep in the back of the, the back of the room, I'm sure. <laughs> but also in some ways, the magic system presented here is also very Gygaxian because also there's all this talk about how, oh, my arms are tied up. I can't, no, no spell worth its salt can be cast while your arms are tied up or while you can't or speak. Just and sure. he also wanted to cast like a lightning spell at one point, I think. And he said, but I only have enough ingredients left over for one. Um, so it, in that sense, those things I think are very much in tune with the kind of magic system that Gary Gygax saw in writing AD&D. Um, right. But that, I mean, who, who really used magic ingredients and, no, I don't. I think people rediscovered it, but I don't. I don't recall playing it that way back in the day. Sure. And maybe we just kind of like it was just too too much information for like you know a preteen mind to absorb. You know. Yeah, and <laughs> and at least with me, I wasn't necessarily wanting to play a super sciency magician when I was when I was twelve or thirteen, getting into D anD. d You were wanting to do something crazy and bombastic, but it seems like here the the magic that's laid out is grounded in you know alchemy and and attempts at like scientific structure right right and, and that's clearly de camps you know i mean i guess he was trained as a uh, i think a physicist or certainly an engineer so that's that that part of his mind he just won't let him let go of that kind of mm-hmm. stuff based on at least all the solo stuff that we've read of his right i mean the harold shea stuff and and obviously there's no magic unless darkness fall Although some people think the, the protagonist is a, mag- a magician, but that's I think part of the reason why I think DeCamp is so interesting to read in in the, the through the lens of the Appendix N is I think DeCamp is constantly trying to find systems and how 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 these supernatural things work in the worlds that he's building, which lends itself really nicely to this idea of creating a rule system for a bunch of geeks to sit around and reenact and, and, and like create these stories together. Right. Right. And I, I mean, that's what he was. I think he was a nerd made good in some senses, you know? <laughs> yeah. And I, I think that one of the things that's kind of cool is about the way magic is portrayed in this is, you know, oftentimes in the appendix and warlock and wizard and magician and necromancer, they can all kind of be used interchangeably here, it really feels like it's a world in which, yes, if you can perform magic, you can perform any kind of magic, but the kinds of magic are different. Divination is different than sympathetic magic. Sympathetic magic is different different than sorcery, and sorcery is different than wizardry. You know, because they talk about how, like, sorcery is a summoning of spirits to do things that you want them to do, and wizardry is, like, the, the memorization of spells. And these are all very different ways of practicing magic, but you're not limited to just one. It's not like in the new versions of D&D where you have to be a sorcerer or a warlock or a wizard. You can do all these things, but like you you also kind of tend to focus more on one than the other. So, right, right. so the thoughts occurring to me here too, though, like our character Jorian, he is a jack of all trades, but a master of none. Like we're not seeing that with any of the the magicians within, within this book. Like all of them pr- it, it, try to at least be experts whether or not their spells fire off all the time but they they are fully committed to whatever that that class or that subclass is absolutely because one of the big thing about wizards in this in this book as well is it talks about how 
the wizard in the, the wizards in the Goblin Tower, they study for years to do this. Studying magic in and of in and of itself extends the human lifespan significantly. So now you can spend hundreds of years studying this mm-hmm. stuff, but you also have to study it at the expense of all of your kind of pleasures. And in fact, they even talk about how like a lot of the magic can't be performed unless you're celibate. I don't know if that's accurate, right. but we also don't know if that's true or not, or that's just what some of these characters are saying. <laughs> unreliable, <laughs> unreliable narrator. Uh, you know. Yeah, I like in the in Tarxia that he's they're pissed off, and one of the reasons why they want to like overthrow the theocrat is because they're only allowed to practice, you know, horoscopes and and one other form of magic. And like, oh, how can how can anybody work in these <laughs> yeah. conditions? It was <laughs> divinations and um, and sympathetic magic. Right. Right. Um, but back to Jorian for a second, since you mentioned it, it was funny when he was giving his whole narrative of how before he became, because I think, I guess one thing we forgot to mention is he starts off as the king, but it's almost like a, a, a the small city state. And it's almost like the Aztec thing where he's, he's sacrificed after five years, you know, that all the kings are, are, are executed after five years in order to not stagnate the government and the society. But he talks about, you know, he was actually the son of a clockmaker. Um, he learned the craft, but his hands are too clumsy to do that. And so he did all these things, and then he had his horoscope read. He says, well, I think you can only, only ever be an adventurer or a king. <laughs> <laughs> right? And, like, adventurer was kind of a, der- a derogatory term, right? He said, oh, you know, adventurer, you, <laughs> you, would you be like, a, you know, he says, well, wasn't a soldier kind of adventurer? A soldier I shall be, right? And then he gets bored out of his mind being a soldier after a year he quits. You know? <laughs> <laughs> totally. So. You know, so he's he's an adventurer. He's not a murder hobo. I mean, he does kill a few people, but he's definitely not a murder hobo in that in that sense. So I think that's an interesting uh, interesting take. He's definitely not a freebooter the way that Conan is to a certain extent. He does seem to be genuinely regretful. He he doesn't kill um, Basso or his uh, you know the the bouncer character, mm-hmm. even though he has a chance to. So um, it is an interesting take on on a, a sword. Uh, I I don't know if I would call this swords and sorcery, but. Let's call that, for lack of a better term at the moment, a swords and sorcery hero. No, and even on page 108, at one point it says, I fear you are not cut out for the adventurer's part either. And then Jorian says, how so? And whoever this is, I'm forgetting who this is who's saying this, says, you're just not ruthlessly selfish enough to succeed at it. A true adventurer would have embezzled Bellius's gold and would never have tried to rescue those wenches. (laughs) So Jurian is just enough of a hero to make him not an adventurer. Because <laughs> right. clearly in this adventurer does mean murder hobo and, and Jurian's right. not quite the murder hobo. Right, right. <laughs> and that's a whole, that whole bit with the castle of the torturers cracked me up though. That was pretty funny too. <laughs> yeah, so so the ideas that DeCamp wraps up into each of these these cultures and these little vignettes, it's it's great. Like the the executioner island castle club world is just is just a is just a perfect a perfect setting to drop into a campaign it it it's bonkers but it's it's just bonkers enough that it's that it's fun to to wrap your head around right i mean i could easily see each of these chapters literally being a module yeah, yeah. or an evening session right it's like, oh, this is a, I don't know if it's a Pathfinder adventure path or something like that, but it's literally that kind of thing. It's a sequence of, you know, it's, it's um, you know, Goblin Tower, GT1, GT2, GT3. <laughs> yeah, I feel like this, in a, in a lot of ways, the Goblin Tower is, is a series of really brilliant modules strung together by a really long-winded and boring DM. 
<laughs> I agree. <laughs> I had a uh, film professor back in the day. He, were, he was an old Polish guy, and he always used to say, just to remember, material is always smarter than you are. So, <laughs> <laughs> so one thing that came up in here a couple of times, at one point they're talking about it being the month of the ram, and another point they're talking about being the month of the pike. And I don't know. Now, fantasy time and calendar conventions always tend to be like a little silly to me. But then again, also just using our own calendar seems silly. But then doing something like, you know, on the on the 32nd of September is also pretty silly, too. So how do you guys feel about your fantasy calendars and how how do you do that in your gaming? I mean, I don't think we should use... We shouldn't use the, the month terms in our world because those have very specific associations, right? Or even the days of the week because Thursday is Thor's day, right? And Wednesday is, is Odin's day, right? So unless you have a Norse mythology to draw on, right? That doesn't probably make sense in a world that doesn't have, you know, Norse gods, right? Um, so I can see something, but then just saying like, oh, it's the 10th month is kind of boring, right? So it has to be pretty evocative. Like the problem is it's not that it's the month of the ram. It's that the month of the ram doesn't mean anything to us. In this text, it doesn't tell us that it's spring or it's fall or the, the dead of winter. Yeah. How about you, Luke? I, I do like it. And so whenever I was reading this book, I I saw a little bit of Liber and like Fawford and Mouser storytelling seeping in there the way that DeCamp was 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 referring to to the months that seemed very li- like Liberian, the way that it was coming across. Uh, and I, I, I do like that. My my criticism or my fear in in practice within a game is that if you, if you start that granular, if you're like, okay, I'm going to make a month or I'm going to make every month, you know, colored animal month, then you're committed and you've got to come up with 12 or, or whatever happens on your weirdo planet or like continent where you're, where you're adventuring. And so I, I am I am the first to admit that like my DMing is uh, like I don't have a, a whole lot of practice. I've done it over a few years at this point over a, a handful of different campaigns, but I like to just be a bit vaguer and and hand wave. There's stuff over here. There's stuff over there. You've got mountains to the north and deserts to the south, and we'll. Once you start heading south, then I'll flesh out what happens Fuck with the mountains. Yeah, that's the way to do uh, it. <laughs> yeah. So right. I also approach my seasons <laughs> and my my calendars much the same way. Like everything is pretty relative, and so I would be hesitant to be that that specific. And that's that's right, a lot right. of my criticism actually with with using a lot of the canned D and D materials. I guess really across like pretty much any any of the systems after first edition is that there's just so much stuff there in terms of deities and the planes and how you work with that stuff it's right. i mean you can feel boxed in yeah lots of i mean i know people like that a lot of people like their D that way but with me i i want a little bit i want less is more <laughs> well i think something that first starts off as kind of a crutch to help people kind of get creative um stops being a crutch and starts to kind of become a prison. And I think that that's all, that's the rule with that. That's the case with settings. That's the case with rules. I think people find a lot of initial comfort in kind of like using Pathfinder as an example. You know, if you don't know 
what happens when your character falls into the water and you feel uncomfortable making that decision on the spot with Pathfinder, you can turn to page 271 and take a look at what the, what the rule on that is. And if you're not doing it right, there's at least two people at the table who are going to correct you and tell you how it actually works. (laughs) Right. Well, we're going to get a citation that's to the fact that you got the wrong page. Exactly. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) um, I would say I'm of two minds on this. Um, the one the one issue of this overclassification, as you say, it can box you and it can be a prison and um, and limit your yourself. But I think to a certain extent, and certainly Gygax had this, where he had that Gygaxian naturalism. So you have to kind of believe in the world that you're trying to present at that moment that you're presenting it. Um, is absolute consistency required? No, but at that moment, you have to believe in it plausibly, right? Um, so to the extent, at least in this text, that I think that DeCamp had to have it worked out in his mind, like how far these people actually had to travel. He does, he does mention, for example, oh, it was three months later, and because they're still trying to make this deadline to get to this conference, right? Um, so I think that can be of value. And obviously, it was a big problem for Tolkien because he had to work out that there was going to be a full moon on a certain day so that he, they could see the entrance to, uh, you know, the, the mountain so they could get to the back entrance where smogs, you know, right? Um, so you know um i guess where it takes you but even if you're doing all this as a gm to kind of make it invisible to the players i think is is kind of more useful than trying to like foist it upon them so but uh you know having said that like you know I, i'm just uh i mentioned i was running a um yun suin game and one of the uh, to you jeff the other day and one of the reasons one of the things i was very adamant about was like hey right now it's the monsoon season so you're not going anywhere without some adequate present you know you're not getting out of this town you're, you're stuck here oh, there's plenty cool. to do so you, you know you can't you just can't just hop on a ship and get out of here yeah. right? if you want to go to the jungle by all means but you're going to be rainy and miserable right so you can do whatever you want but i'm just letting you know that nobody actually does this kind of stuff <laughs> <laughs> You know, um, so I like the effect of like bringing in weather, but it's usually more a thematic issue. I'm not like literally keeping track of like, I don't have a chart printed out for the whole year of like weather. Sure. Nor, nor are you like for every 10 rounds that you spend in this weather, you're going to have a cumulative minus one modifier that goes away after you've had X number of rounds of rest. Like you're right, not doing right. that either. No, no, not every 10 rounds, Jeff. It's every 12 rounds. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> So I think this is kind of a good time to start wrapping this up. And I guess before we do, let's just kind of go and th- go around and do some last thoughts. I have a very brief one, but one of my last thoughts is I love that in the Goblin Tower, goblins are just another word for demons. And I love this idea that just because you're playing D&D and your players think they know what a goblin is doesn't mean that in this other kingdom, but the people there call goblins might be demons. Right, right. Yeah, I think I one thing that I would say too and again, I'm not I'm I'm not a not a super DM. I'm I'm a, a fairly low-level DM as far <laughs> as how I see it, but like in the the Bourbon and Barbarian stuff that we've done like in our first campaign the the guys were were exploring like the environs of the keep on the borderlands and so i was pulling from like uh i think new big dragon games or something has a publication called a creature compendium and it's just an awesome like osr monster manual you can get it for like two bucks and in that there's uh, a funky uh poison toothed like mountain lion and it's called like a jatabi or some some impronounceable name but we described it as a long-necked weasel cat 
And from there on, like that's that's how like the party referred to the long neck weasel cats. Like that's what they were, and they were able to like they kind of they kind of named it. <laughs> that's right, perfect. Right. I mean, just a way that we have a lot of vernacular here about you know. I, I guess I would imagine, especially down in you know any sort of rural areas in, like in in Arkansas or wherever, you know, you, you know exactly this kind of deer from that kind of deer. Yeah, yeah. You know, a mountain lion's got a local name. You know. <laughs> you know? And I've got a quick question for you. Before before we started recording, I had I had confessed to you that although I love the Chromecast and listen to it all the time, I don't listen to Bourbon and Barbarians because I actually don't like actual play podcasts. But I'm curious, what system do you guys use for Bourbon and Barbarians? So I guess simply simply stated, we use the rule cyclopedia for our our, our Bible of all, all things rules, but I found okay. a couple, a couple shorthand like OSR documents that help for quicker, quicker resolution of, of, you know, the things that, equi- that, that, that are essentially skill checks and the like within the more, you know, ladder system. So, so we're doing a really boiled down sort of basic game. And to this point we've played across a couple different campaigns with relatively low level characters. Like we've never exceeded like fourth level and in both campaigns, the characters, they, you know, we kind of ended with a, with a dire, a dire situation that honestly that the characters probably didn't make it out. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we just sort of, we just, we just wrapped it up. Uh, so, so I've never had to deal with, with higher level, magic or the complications there but but we're playing uh a a bx type game very cool so we are just about out of time luke thank you so much for being on the show it's been a blast having you on here man thank you guys for having me this has been this has been great it's been great. Do we have any uh, good blackmail material for your uh, fellow co-hosts when we have them on? <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of which, excuse myself. <laughs> Speaking of which, our next two episodes, episode forty-two, will be on Robert E. Howard, Elspring de Camp, and Lynn Carter's Conan the Wanderer, and episode forty-three will be on Fritz Leiber's Swords Against Wizardry. Hoy, how can people get a hold of us? Uh, if you want to email us, it's at appendix n at gmail.com we're on twitter at at appendix underscore n if you like our show please rate us on itunes or your podcaster of choice uh it really helps people find us and uh we really are interested in feedback so let us know heck yeah and luke if people want to track you or the chromecast down what's the best way for them to do that so our our materials are at the chromecast.blogspot.com that's that's the easiest way to just access all of our all of our all of our materials across the across the the years that we've been doing the content. I think I said before, I think we've got eight seasons in the bag. So we're at the point where we're starting to put the older seasons that have dropped off the feed uh just on a Google Drive. So if you wanted to get like all of season one, like the Conan materials, you can just hop onto Google Drive and just download all all of the episodes That's- at once just to mainline them. And uh yeah, we, we've got a lot of stuff that we've that we've put out over the years. We we just more or less we're looking for an excuse to get together and talk and and have fun. <laughs> so so there's the the great thing about these old materials. I mean, you guys know it. Like you're doing, you know, the idea here for the Appendix N book club is just it's just it's just killer. Like there's there's so much good stuff to read nowadays. But just going backwards, there's so much good stuff that we can that we can get exposed to also so you're just not at a loss to find good things to talk about well said 
All right. Well, that is our episode. Thank you, guys. See you in the stacks. Read on. The library is closed. <laughs>